1848, a young man was carrying out a dangerous job on the railroad in central Vermont, USA. He was the foreman of a team of men who respected him greatly. On this day, 13th of September 1848, this man was doing something he had done hundreds of times before, but that day his attention was diverted for just a few seconds. In those few seconds, his life would change forever, and his experience would become one of the keystones of our understanding of neuroscience and of human behaviour. This is this curious story of Phineas Gage and his impact on the world of science. Let's find out more. Hello, I'm Leanne Walker, and it's great to be back with another episode of Wonder. This is the show that brings you tales of wonder and curiosity about the people, places and events that shape our daily lives. As always, if you want any more information about any of the episodes, head on over to the website at www.injustoneday.com forward slash wonder, where you'll find the show notes, you'll get links and sources, and of course you can subscribe to the show. In September of 1848, Phineas Gage was 25 years old. He was a foreman of a railway crew who were building the bed for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad in central Vermont in USA. He enjoyed his work and was well respected by his men and the management. The crew had to work together to excavate the rocks about three quarters of a mile south of the town of Cavendish. This involved blasting holes in the rocks and then drilling through them to create the necessary clearings. As foreman, Phineas Gage was involved in deciding where the holes would be drilled, how much powder was to be used to blast the holes so they could drill them. The process was dangerous and involved tamping the fuse and powder together gently, then adding sand to that and then a further tamping before the fuse was lit. Phineas had a long iron rod tapered at one end for tamping. It was three feet six inches long, one and a quarter inch cylinder and it weighed about 13 pounds. Around about 4.30pm on that day, Wednesday 13th of September, Phineas began the tamping for another blast, but was momentarily distracted by one of his crew. Accounts differ as to exactly what happened next, but some say he struck the side of the rock that caused a spark to fly and ignite the powder. Others say he tamped it too hard while he was distracted before he put the sand in, so it was the force that caused the spark that ignited the powder. Either way, an explosion occurred with such force that it pushed the tamping iron out of Phineas's hands at great speed and upwards. The point went under Phineas's cheekbone, behind his left eye, and out of his skull, and then landed about 25 yards behind him. He, naturally, was thrown off his feet and landed hard some feet away. It's not known for definite if he was unconscious for a short time, but Phineas suggests not. What his crew saw was that he twitched a few times on the ground and then within minutes he was talking and walking again. Immediately his men ran over to him and sat him up. They then carried him to a nearby ox cart, his head of course was now pouring with blood, and they lifted him in. He sat upright for the full three-quarters of a mile journey to Cavendish. Once back at his lodgings, he got down from the cart unaided. He then sat on a chair on the veranda and he told his stories to the passers-by. When Dr Williams, the first medical practitioner to arrive, came, he greeted him with the words, Doctor, here's business enough for you. 
Dr. John Harlow then arrived about an hour later, and he and Dr. Williams managed to stem the profuse bleeding. That action on their part, and Dr. Harlow's subsequent careful management of a severe infection, undoubtedly saved Phineas's life. Dr. Harlow kept an account of what happened on that day, and how he treated him subsequently. His notes and reports give us the most detail of this terrible accident and its ramifications. There are two published accounts by John Harlow, one in 1848, shortly after the accident, which gave little in the way of detail of the after-effects. A more detailed account was given to the Massachusetts Medical Society in 1868, but more of that later. I do have a copy of this report, which is from the public domain, and it will be available as a PDF on the show notes page. The bleeding stopped around 11pm, and Phineas rested that night. The next morning his head was heavily bandaged and his left eyeball was still protruding a good half inch. Dr Harlow allowed Phineas a visit from his mother and uncle, whom he recognised, which was a good sign. Within a few days, however, his health deteriorated significantly. His face puffed up, he became delirious and Phineas lapsed into a semi-comatose state. he developed an infection on the brain. Dr. Harlow performed emergency surgery to release the pressure from the abscess. Fearing that he was about to die, a local carpenter prepared a coffin for Phineas. For the next few weeks, Phineas was very ill. Dr. Harlow monitored his progress very carefully. He did lose the sight in his left eye, and that remained sewn shut for the rest of his life. But, slowly and eventually, he improved and in late November, about 10 weeks after the accident, he returned home to New Hampshire along with his tamping iron, which he started to carry around with him everywhere. Over the next months he recuperated at home. In late 1849 he was invited to meet Dr Henry Jacob Bigelow in Boston. He was the Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School. Dr Bigelow had heard of the case and had approached Dr Harlow, per his report in 1868, and asked if he could examine Phineas. So, Phineas travelled to Boston in the November to be examined by Henry Bigelow. By this time, Phineas's case was of enormous interest and he was presented to the medical students at Harvard. Such a case had never been seen before and it was truly unbelievable to many that Phineas had recovered in the way that he had. Bigelow examined Phineas over several weeks but at the end of the time, he reported that Phineas was recovered and that there was no lasting effects of the accident. He made a summary of the case and reported it with images in the American Journal of the Medical Sciences for July 1850. His report pronounced Gage quite recovered in his faculties of body and mind. Because Phineas could still walk, talk, see and hear, Bigelow concluded that his brain must be fine. The medical consensus at the time knew little of the true workings of the brain and it was generally held that the frontal lobes didn't do much. If people could suffer such grave injuries and walk away, then that part of the brain must not impact function much at all. Of course we now know that to be false, the frontal lobes contribute to nearly every activity in the brain. On his return home following his visit to Boston, Phineas was keen to get back to work. He approached his previous employers to be re-employed, but despite the owners thinking very highly of Phineas, they refused to take him back to his original position. 
citing significant changes in his personality that would make it impossible to take him back. In the months that followed, according to Gage's family and friends, his behaviour was significantly altered by the accident. In his report in 1868, Dr Harlow wrote, His contractors who regarded him as the most efficient and capable foreman in their employ, previous to his injury, considered the change in his mind so marked that they could not give him his place again. He is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows, impatient of restraint of advice when it conflicts with his desires, at times pertinaciously obstinate, yet capricious and vacillating, devising many plans of future operation, which are no sooner arranged than they're abandoned in turn for others appearing more feasible. Previous to his injury, he possessed a well-balanced mind and was looked upon by those who knew him to be a shrewd, smart businessman, energetic and persistent in executing all his plans of operation. In this regard, his mind was radically changed, so decidedly that his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage. After the disappointment of not being taken back by his employers and the indignity associated with that, Phineas, now out of work, travelled around various jobs, including a time with P.T. Barnum's museum, not the circus as some sources suggest. His injuries, his recovery and his tamping iron that came with him everywhere now were of great interest to many. In 1850, after some months, Phineas finally found steady work. He was driving a coach and horse in New Hampshire, a job he stayed at for about 18 months. Phineas and Dr Harlow kept in touch, but it was thought that despite some changes in his behaviour, Phineas was to all intents and purposes cured. Then, in 1852, completely out of the blue, Phineas decided to move to Chile in South America. He had been recruited by an entrepreneur hoping to take advantage of a gold rush in Chile. He travelled by boat and was sick almost the whole journey there, but once ashore, he quickly resumed his employment of driving coaches. This time, though, it was along the rugged, mountainous trails between Valparaiso and Santiago. Tough, physically demanding job, but a job that he did for seven years. In 1859, Phineas's health deteriorated and he was forced to return to America and to San Francisco, near where his family had moved. After a few months of rest, he found work as a farm labourer and seemed to be doing better. Then, one day in 1860, after a particularly difficult day, he was physically exhausted and very weak. The following night, over dinner, he had a seizure. More followed, and after one particularly intense fit, he died on May the 21st, aged 36, almost 12 years after his accident. There was no autopsy when Phineas died, and his family buried him two days later. Dr Harlow had lost touch with Phineas Gage whilst he was in South America, but somehow found his mother's address in 1866 and contacted her again. The following year, with the family's permission, Phineas's body was exhumed and his head removed so that the skull could be examined. There was no brain tissue left, just the skull with the bone fragments. The remainder of his body was buried once again in San Francisco Cemetery. About a year after the accident, Phineas had given his tamping iron to Harvard Medical School's Warren Anatomical Museum, but he later reclaimed it and made what he called my iron bar, my constant companion during the remainder of his life. 
After studying both the skull and the iron bar and completing his 1868 report, Dr. Harlow redeposited both items in the Warren Museum where they remain on display today. It was a long time before Phineas's psychological changes became known. None were specifically mentioned by Harlow in 1848, nor did Bigelow report any in 1850. However, not until Harlow's 1868 report was any real notice taken of the psychological changes, and even in comments on it, they were, they were frequently ignored. This was partly because before 1848, there was little known about how our brain worked. Most of the understanding of human behaviour was taken from physical observation. There was little opportunity or scientific understanding to enable development of this area of science. Many scientists followed the practice of phrenology. It's a pseudoscience primarily focused on measurements of the human skull, based on the concept that the brain is the organ of the mind, and that certain brain areas have localised specific functions or modules. It's what the 19th century phrenologists call the only true science of the mind. They had phrenological surgeries, schools, foods, and even doctors. They measured heads enthusiastically. Head size meant brain size, which meant mental power and temperament, or so they believed. For the phrenologist, shape was more important than size. A good cranioscopy could, they believed, show special talent. Throughout the 19th century, phrenologists believed that Phineas's mental changes, his profanity for example, stemmed from the destruction of his mental organ of benevolence as they saw it, part of the brain responsible for goodness, benevolence and the gentle character. The context began to change about the mid-1860s, round about the time of Harlow's report. Paul Broca, who was a French physician, anatomist and anthropologist, he was best known for his research on the region of the frontal lobe that's been named after him, on Broca's area. He suggested that language functions were localised in the left frontal lobe. A little later, David Ferrier, a Scottish doctor who spent most of his life working and studying the neurological origin of epilepsy, used controversial monkey experiments in 1873 that demonstrated prefrontal damage caused profound personality changes. It was Ferrier who highlighted Phineas Gage in the findings of Dr. Harlow. But years elapsed before Harlow's findings gained acceptance. A theory of function of the frontal lobes was even further away. With the development of new scanning and computer technologies, a new chapter in Phineas Gage's studies has opened in the past 30 to 40 years. Phineas Gage has probably never been more popular. Between 1982 and the early part of the 21st century, three CT computed tomography-based methods have been used to reconstruct the passage of the tamping iron through Phineas's brain. They produced somewhat varying pictures of its travel. In 1982, Rick and Ken Tyler of Boston used CT scans of Phineas's skull to determine the limits of the bony damage. From those images, they concluded that the brain damage was mostly to the left hemisphere, but the right must also have suffered. In 1994, Hannah Damasio and her colleagues, after making x-rays, photographs and measurements of Gage's skull, modelled the passage of the tamping iron. They had it emerging from under the right flap of frontal bone, so the brain damage was more frontal and right of the midline than it had been suggested previously. In 2004, Ratui and Talos used thin CT scans to build a three-dimensional representation of Phineas's skull itself, rather than an image of what it might have been like. How well they succeeded is immediately obvious in an illustration from their papers, a copy of which will be in the show notes. 
They were the first to see that the diameter of the entry area was smaller than that of the tamping iron. Therefore, the skull had to hinge open for the iron to pass through it. After the tamping iron passed through, the hinge must have been closed by the action of the soft tissue. On their reconstruction, the brain damage was left frontal, almost exactly as Dr Harlow had said a century and a half ago, and without the aid of computer technology. In time, Phineas Gage became the most famous patient in the annals of neuroscience because his case was the first to suggest a link between brain trauma and personality change. For students and academics of psychology, the Phineas Gage story is well known. It's been told many times in many different forms and many of the theories surrounding the psychological impact on Phineas have actually been untrue. Psychologist and historian Malcolm McMillan, currently at the University of Melbourne, has been chronicling mistakes about Phineas for over 40 years. In his book, An Odd Kind of Fame, Stories of Phineas Gage, Malcolm McMillan writes that two-thirds of introductory psychology textbooks mention Gage. Even today, his skull, the tamping iron and the mask of his face, made while he was alive, are the most sought-out items at the Warren Anatomical Museum on the Harvard Medical School campus. Malcolm wrote An Odd Kind of Fame, published in 2000 by MIT Press, to give a true account of the accident and its aftermath. He explores the many ways that Gage's tale has been represented and misrepresented through the years in popular, fictional and scientific works. So what can we learn from all of this? Well, Phineas Gage suffered an horrific injury doing his job. How he survived that physically is itself a mystery. From those closest to him, they saw significant psychological changes, despite the doctor stating otherwise. Yet, he continued to work and live a seemingly normal life for many years after that. So either those personality changes were short-lived because of the trauma to the brain in the short term, or he was less affected than initially thought. We've learnt a great deal from Phineas and continue to do so. He will go down in the annals of science, but another deeper reason Phineas Gage will probably always be with us is that, as one neuroscientist writes, Beneath the tall tales and fish stories, a basic truth embedded in Gage's story has played a tremendous role in shaping modern neuroscience. That the brain is the physical manifestation of the personality and sense of self. It was Phineas Gage who pointed us towards that truth. And this is a true tale of wonder. Thanks for listening. For more information on this episode, head on over to www.injustoneday.com forward slash pg, where you will find the show notes and links to the show. As always, keep in touch via social media or email hello at injustoneday.com. If you have a story you'd like to hear on the show, then do let me know. Until next time, have a great day.